0: Most of us here are very familiar with Brian, but just in case you're not, let me explain who, who he is, because we are amongst royalty today. Um, and I'm talking about myself, of course, not Brian. But <laughs> 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 all right, tough crowd, whatever. So, Brian Young is with Creation Instruction Association. He's out of Junietta, Nebraska. I met him when I was on staff at the church out at Hastings. That's his home church. And uh, he travels all over the country teaching on creation, science, the Bible, as well as many, many other things in in, in the world of apologetics and and just bringing the truth to light. And as many of you guys know, we live in a very dark world and we need more people at the forefront. So, Brian has been a good friend of mine for many years now. Uh, I feel privileged to just get to help him out with a little bit that I do and definitely when he is in the area, uh, I love to bring him in because, man, he always brings some good truth from the word. So let's give him a big, warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Brian Young. Thank you very much. Uh, it is great to be here as always, and I'll tell you what, in uh, not typical Chris fashion, he's being very humble. He helps out a lot, actually, not just a little. So, no. Anyway, we are going to uh, talk about the tabernacle this morning. This is a a message I really love talking about. Um, This morning I know I I got to sit in a little bit on the Bible study and and talking about the Rhema Word of God versus the Logos Word of God. and I I really believe that this is a big part of leading people into the Rhema Word. To be able to understand, I mean there's some Logos here, but to be able to understand this is, uh, it's much more than a surface understanding of the tabernacle i'll be honest that when you know i was younger and i'd read through exodus and really a lot of the old testament it is tough Uh, it's just like gristle you know i can't wait till i get to the new testament you know but the older i've gotten the more that uh, i've learned and the more that i've just known to love jesus the more these things are i'm finding out they're delicacies and I, I hope that that's going to happen with you a little bit here with the tabernacle, because do you know that the tabernacle is discussed in over 50 chapters of Scripture? That's huge. There is nothing more than, than really Jesus discussed in Scripture. And you know how you often hear, you know, if it's said once, it's important. If it's said twice, you better your ears better perk up, right? If it's in 50 chapters, then I think we ought to be studying this, don't you? Yeah, it is something that is very important, because really, it is all about Jesus. A matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 8 here, in the New Testament, referring to this tabernacle, he says, there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve at a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, when Moses was about to build this tabernacle, God is saying, see to it that you do exactly what I told you. Because this is a copy, a shadow of what's in heaven. You know what amazes me today is that if if we have a sermon on heaven, People are just like, oh, they love it. They, oh, you know, what's heaven gonna be like? And you know, all these great things. We're so excited to discuss what heaven and angels and all these things. But hey, she wanna talk about the tabernacle? Uh, do we have to? You really want to know what heaven's like? It sounds to me like we ought to go through the copy and shadow of it. What the word says about it. Not what our imagines, hopes, and dreams are about it, but what the word says about it. And that is the message of the tabernacle. Now, I, I think some of you have seen this because I think Pastor Chris has uh, talked about this in the past. Uh, Chuck Missler has talked about it. This isn't something I've come up on my own, but it is a fascinating fact. Do you know that the Bible tells us when the Israelites camped around the tabernacle, it says this tribe is supposed to camp directly north. And so is it. There's three tribes. Three tribes were to camp directly east, directly west, directly south. Now, it tells us then also in the book of Numbers and elsewhere how many people are in each tribe. So you can just look at this, add up the numbers, and you get a total of how many people camp directly north of the tabernacle and directly south and so on. So if I make a little tent here as an icon just like you do on map keys of a certain number of people, you know, a tent for every hundred people or whatever it is, do you know that if I would have taken an airplane and flown over the tabernacle when those Israelites were camped in the wilderness, this is what it would have looked like. This is how they camped out. It was a perfect picture of the cross pointing to Jesus they're in the wilderness everywhere they went that's pretty cool to me and so if you want to know what the tabernacle is about that's a good picture to show you you see what we're talking about here is eternal life the tabernacle is kind of synonymous in a sense with eternal life which is synonymous with Jesus Jesus is eternal life the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is the tabernacle. You might say, we have now become the tabernacle. That's what the Bible says. And that spirit, Jesus, now live in us. We can talk more about that later maybe. But we often think in the westernized church, we think the Old Testament is the law, the New Testament, that's the gospel. That's where we learn about Jesus. You want to know about Moses, the law, you read the Old Testament. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, did he say, well, let me tell you about what Mark and Matthew are going to do. No. He reasoned with them from the law and the prophets, because it's the law and the prophets that testify about Jesus. So if you've got the idea that the Old Testament is just about Moses and the law, you don't get the Old Testament, because those are words that testify about Jesus. It's that simple. When Moses came down the the mountain there, Mount Sinai, he didn't come down with only the Ten Commandments. But that's what everybody thinks because that's our culture. The Bible tells us he also came down with the blueprints of the tabernacle. He came down with both the law and the gospel because the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus, a shadow, a copy of heaven. Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life is heaven. Well, inside this tabernacle, what you're going to see is there are seven pieces of furniture. Now, I know it looks like there are six here, but the, really the, the, the Ark of the Covenant had two. You had a, a, a mercy seat and the part that held. But there are seven pieces of furniture, all in all. Now, I've got them here. You're going to see better pictures as we go through. But I would just want you to see how they're laid out in the tabernacle. You'll see better pictures of the tabernacle as well, but this big square is basically the tabernacle. And it was a, basically a big, large curtain that you couldn't get over. There was only one entrance into it on the east side right here. Once you went in, you're going to run into the bronze altar. Right in front of that, you have a laver. Then you'd enter into what is called the holy place, which is right here, this bigger rectangle, or smaller rectangle, I should say. And inside there, there were three furniture pieces. One, two, and three right in front of it. Then you went into the holy place, which is a perfect cube, or the most holy place, I mean. And there we have the Ark of the Covenant. The point being is it's straight and two things on the side, another cross. Laid out the same way that the entire thing would have been from an airplane view. So, I will not be able to go through every piece and every detail here today because there's just so much. And while, yes, I am long-winded, I also realize the mind can only handle what the rear end can. So you're gonna only get a a, a portion of it here today. Um, The eastern gate. Remember, this is a model of heaven. There's only one way into heaven then, right? One gate, one entrance. And isn't that not what the scriptures tell us? that there is only one way into heaven, by the name of Jesus. We'll talk about that more later and give you some verses in Acts, but bottom line, it's on the east. Why the east? Well, I don't know 100% sure why, but I think there's some possible biblical indications here. Number one, uh, we see that the east seems to be a direction of God. Do you recall in the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, is another picture of heaven. In the Garden of Eden, how many gates were there to get into the Garden of Eden? One. As a matter of fact, when they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God put some cherub, these angels, flaming sword, in front of the gate so that nobody could enter. Okay? It wasn't like Adam and Eve could go, oh man, because I bet they wanted back in. You know, it's like, oh, let's just go around the guy. No, and that's another thing, you know, this whole idea of cherub. If, I, if, I, if I'm not in church and somebody says, hey, did you see the cherub? What do you have in your mind? Some fat little, eh, boing, right? <laughs> Some valentine guy? No, when you think a cherub, you think warrior. Okay, I, I, I just love to imagine sometimes what, you know, Seth and uh, uh, Cain and Abel... Would have thought. You know, can you imagine them kind of climbing up on the hills, peeking over and saying, there he, there he is, there he is. he's looking, he's looking. You know, because there was one, and it seems that that remained there until the time of the flood. I mean, it was these, what a testimony that that had to have been. And it amazes me that even with that, these people, the world became evil to the point to where there were eight righteous people on earth. And yet, they could have all just gone and looked and saw that cherub right there, it seems. But anyway, east seems to be a direction of God. Do you know that when Cain killed Abel, where does Cain go? He fled west, away from God. So while I like Michael W. Smith, this go west young man song that he has, maybe it should have been go east young man. We also see that If you ever go to Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, we are uh, leading a tour, and Chris can share more with that later, but um, uh, he's going to go with us, and we're going to get some people to sign up around here so that we can take uh, a tour to Israel, probably the end of 2019. And So if you'd like to go with us, see Chris, and you'll be able to see the Eastern Gate. Now, it's kind of... But if you go through that eastern gate, you're basically in the Temple Mount. I've been there right, basically standing right on the other side of this until I got kicked out. But um, they don't like you hanging around there. But um, you can see there's a cemetery right below this as well. One of the reasons that is is because they have planted a cemetery there to try and desecrate this area. Because it is thought that the Messiah, when he returns, is going to come the eastern gate so it has been blocked up it's sometimes called the golden gate as well it has been blocked up with stone so that nobody can use the gate because that's for the messiah well the muslims think well really well we'll show you let's desecrate it and make it unclean they just don't realize that my god is the god of both the living and the dead so he's supposed to come from the east it seems like you know, some churches, some, they model their, their uh, churches after the tabernacle as well, so that the churches would always face east. A lot of the old churches would do that, facing east for this very reason as well. Okay? So we have Jonah, when he was fleeing from God, fled west. So east seems symbolically, and maybe there's more that I haven't seen, I don't know, but it seems symbolically to be the direction that the Lord comes. Maybe that's why it's in the east. But nonetheless, there is only one gate, one entrance. Jesus is that door. You know, today there's a lot of churches. Really, Christianity is unique. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. That's really the essence of Christianity. But even among Christianity, we do see in some cases that that has changed. That, well jesus is a way to heaven but he's not the way to heaven no 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 no. the bible says he is the way the life the truth okay but he is the only way just like there is only one gate and i got news for you if your church is teaching you that there is something that you can do to get to heaven, that you can be good enough. And if you are a member of this church or if you, do, uh, you know, are good enough that you can get to heaven, I got news for you. If you can't be good enough, then you can't be bad enough either, can you? Yeah, No, you can never be good enough to get to heaven. And you're going to see that, that the only way that you can go is by being brought through this gate. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Some people think, well, if I pray to this God, if I pray to this saint, if I pray to this idol. No. Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there in the Bible. So if you think that you can get there through Mary or Buddha or your own works, or anything else. It's against what Timothy says clearly in the Word of God. It's against the whole picture seen right here. There is one way into heaven. Remember, the tabernacles a picture of heaven. Jesus Christ. The very first thing that you'd see as you walked through this gate, you can see you'd run into this brazen altar. Now what is this made of? It is made of bronze covering wood. Okay, It's not solid bronze, it's bronze covering wood. Now, we see here in Leviticus, it says, "...whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat, he does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle, through this gate, that man shall be cut off from among his people." In other words, and you're going to see other scriptures here, that if you make a sacrifice anywhere else other than right there, you are cut off. Kind of along the same message, isn't it? You're going to see a recurring theme here. If you think there is any sacrifice that can be made, that you can be good enough to get there, you're still cut off from God's people because there is only one sacrifice and one place that it can be made. Right here. Notice the horns on the altar, on the corners. You know, it's been said that uh, they would use that to tie down the, the uh, sacrifice. I, I don't think so, to be honest with you. They weren't taking live cattle and saying, Hold still! You really didn't need to tie down a dead animal. I think there's something more that's a picture here, not a practical purpose but a spiritual reason, it's here. Okay. Acts 4.12, again, following this theme. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of Christ here. One sacrifice, one place, and we are cursed if we go anywhere else. Other than Jesus. Now, before we get too far, and I'm not going to talk much about this right now, but I do want you to see something very important, that the outer court area, this whole tabernacle, had this kind of uh, curtain wall around it. Okay, Like I said, you couldn't go under it, you couldn't go over it, you had to go into the gate. There was no other way. But what's interesting is I just want you to see the bases of these things here. The ropes that are tied down. Every detail. That's why God said, be sure you make it exactly the, the, the way I showed you on the mountain. Okay, Those ropes and pins and everything, we can see about being tied to the cords of, of God's kindness and uh, uh, everything. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but even those have uh spiritual purposes i'll talk about some of the ones on the most holy place but i'm going to skip the outer wall part for now now as i said it's bronze covering wood the closer you get into the most holy place what you're going to find is that the material becomes more precious okay now this is still pretty nice but it's going to get better as you will see so keep that in mind as well now Symbolically, it seems that in Scripture we do see fire is a picture or a representation of judgment. Bronze is a picture of deity and judgment as well. Now, just to give you some examples, we see Daniel. When he has his dream and he has a statue, we have feet like burnished bronze, right? Eyes like flaming fires that that pierce things in Revelation. So there's, this is what I mean like throughout Scripture, it seems like there are symbols that will uh, point to that type of thing. Wood is more of a, a humanity while well, bronze deity. So what we see is that if this is bronze covering wood, we have a deity and a humanity picture being shown here. Jesus, who is a picture of the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that can be made, Jesus was both full man and full God. That's what the Bible tells us in the New Testament, right? Full man, full God. Well, that bronze, the deity, protected the humanity of Christ. Though He was voluntarily gave His life on the cross, though He died, He rose again. Just like the Psalms tell us, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. And by the way, this is a Messianic Psalm. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see decay. This is something where you're building fires on every day. Why wouldn't that wood burn up? Why wouldn't it decay? Because that bronze deity protected it so that you could have it on fire and it never burned up oxygen couldn't get to it, none of that. So you have a deity protecting the humanity, just as God the Father raised God the Son. Now, I don't understand how all of that happens, you know, this whole difference of the Trinity. I just believe it because the Bible says it. I, I, I can't wrap my mind around it. And as you've heard me say before, if you've heard me speak, I am so glad I don't know why or how God did everything He did because if I could tell you, that would make me God. We have to resign to the fact that we are not God and we serve a God that is so big, so grand that we can't understand everything. Thank you, Jesus, that you are that big. I don't want to be able to understand everything because that makes God very small if I can. Bronze, as I said, also shows judgment. Here's a couple of other examples. I talked about Daniel, but Revelation. These things says the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and His feet like fine brass. When it's talking about the Lord returning and bringing judgment at this time, that's the picture you see of Christ. We see James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty. This is why you can't be good enough to get to heaven, folks. Because no matter how good you think you are, if you stumble at one point... You're guilty, and if you're guilty, you know what you deserve? Judgment, wrath. Yeah. You know who deserves to be put on that altar? We do. We deserve it. Because you can never be good enough. You might think, oh, I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, have you kept all those Ten Commandments perfectly? No, you haven't, have you? I'd love to talk more about that, but I'll run out of time if I do. You see, too many Christians, I believe, are satisfied being saved. But they're not sanctified. Hey, Jesus died for me, great! Now let me go live my life, and they don't care. But see, I think Jesus wants so much more for you than your salvation. He wants you to be sanctified, not just justified. We're going to talk about this more. But you see, if I went through the door of that tabernacle, I'm at this altar, am I saved? Must be. I'm in the door. I got Jesus. He's taking the wrath for me. I'm saved. So why didn't the tabernacle stop right there? I mean... The tabernacle could have been so much easier to carry around in the wilderness. It it, it could have been so much smaller, faster to, you know, pack up and put back together. Just have a little wall, but there is a lot more. We've just entered it. If that's all there was to Christianity, the tabernacle would have been a lot smaller. But apparently, there's more to Christianity than being saved. The other thing I want you to see is this altar, really the whole thing, but it was a man-made altar. God told them, build this. But it was God developed. It was His power that made it something. This is just a building that we're in. It's nothing. means nothing. But it's what God uses it for. His Spirit in his people, that makes it something. Man could never judge sin. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this, oh, we can't judge. When I say man can't judge, what I mean is man can't justify. I'll explain that in a minute. Give you an example Aaron and Abihu. Okay, these guys are priests. Okay. Aaron's sons, uh, uh, Abihu, and uh, tell me out here. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Is it Nathan? What is it? Okay. Ah. Anyway. Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. Thank you. I just drew a blank there, but they were Aaron's sons. And they were in the line of the priesthood. And what they did is they took fire from the altar and they put it in these incense things. And God was so angry with them that he killed them. He destroyed them because they had sinned greatly. And I don't know about you, but I remember reading this story, and I'm like, man, God, lighten up. God doesn't tolerate sin. And that's why when you can't be good enough, he's not going to lighten up on you either. There's going to be a cost of sin. What was so bad about what they did? They offered unauthorized fire. Man never, remember, fire is a representation of judgment. Where did the fire come from that burned up the sacrifices on the altar? They didn't have Bic lighters, you know, they weren't taking flint stones. Man, these things burn hard. Can't get this cow started. How did they light the fire? They didn't. Never did the fire in the tabernacle be lit by anybody but God. Leviticus says this, Fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offerings and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Even when Elijah made an offering, remember when God had been kicked out of Israel for the most part? There were all these prophets of Baal. Elijah goes up onto Mount Carmel, and these 450 prophets of Baal come and and they call out to Baal all day long and, and nothing. And even Elijah says, maybe he's traveling, maybe he's sleeping. And then it comes to Elijah's turn to make this sacrifice because they made a deal. They said, whoever is God, let's find out. You make your offering, I'll make mine. We'll find out who is God. Well, Elijah, he makes his sacrifice. He builds a big trench around the altar. He then brings, and brings uh, water and fills the trench, pours it over his sacrifice so that even a bic lighter isn't going to help. And he calls on God, and what happens? fire comes out of heaven consumes the sacrifice and even burns up the stones even when he made a sacrifice the fire came from heaven when Solomon rebuilds the temple go look at it fire came out from heaven even there never did judgment upon the sacrifice come from man this is why, you know, when the movie The Passion came out, uh, it was all this talk about, um, you know, who killed Jesus? The Romans or the Jews? Neither. Neither, really. Jesus says that he went as a voluntarily. He gave his life. They had no power over him. He voluntarily gave his life. Man didn't put judgment. On Jesus, God did. Which is why as He hung on the cross, He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The judgment was the wrath of God. And I got news for you. That's the wrath we would be under without Jesus. Call it propitiation. Propitiation. He took our punishment since we can't be good enough. He took it. He went to the cross for our sins. By His stripes, you have been healed. And so, the wrath of God has now been satisfied. Not because of me, but because of that altar. The cross was also made out of You could even picture the deity of God on that cross, covering the cross in a picture there with Jesus. That fire never, ever went out. Okay, That tells us that that forgiveness was always available. Always. Because it was on the altar. Not on the people, but on the altar. On the sacrifice. So, that is why Nadab and Abihu had sinned so greatly, is they were trying to add in their own human flesh in offering fire that was not from heaven. The cross, as I said, was also man-made, but the judgment came from heaven. Some scripture verses here. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers. He would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He offered himself. That's the picture we're seeing. And as I said, you could be satisfied being saved going no further. But I think there's much more to do. What about the horns before we leave this piece of furniture here? I believe that it is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. By the way, if this seems really stupid to you, you might be perishing. If this message of the cross and what Jesus has done for you Seems foolish. You might want to listen to this verse. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, scripturally, we see horns are a picture of power all the time. Now, Psalm 18.2 talks of Jesus being this. He is the shield, my shield. Do you know that in the Old Testament times, that if you had done something where you got into trouble, maybe accidentally killed somebody or whatever, that you would run to the altar and you would grab onto the horns and you'd just stay there. It was like base, you were safe. It talks about it in, I think it's Leviticus, uh, where it says if if you do, go grab onto the horns of the altar. Nobody could kill you then, You, you couldn't be hurt, okay? You could be arrested, taken away, and then you'd have a fair trial or whatever, but the point being is you were not to be touched. Even um, one of David's right hand men, after he had betrayed David when Solomon became king, ran and, he, well, he's hanging on to the altar. Solomon said, Go get him, drag him away. He was safety. Guys, that's what Jesus is for us. He is the horn of our salvation. We have so many people who live in fear today. Fear of, you know, what man can do, which you shouldn't worry about. What you should fear is what the devil can do. But I've got news for you. If we hang on to that altar of Jesus, really Jesus Himself, there's nothing to fear. Where, O oh, death, is thy sting? I don't need to fear death. I don't need to fear what man can do to me. I don't even fear what the devil can do to me because he who is in me is greater than he who is in this world. Do any of you live in fear? Go grab onto the horn of our salvation. Jesus was sacrificed once. You see, this altar that we see in the Old Testament is a copy and shadow. It's not the real thing. It's a picture of the real thing. Which is why every day sacrifices were being burned on that altar three times a day. Now, in some cases, twice in others. Jesus says this in Hebrews 9.25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, We'll talk about that on the holy place, your most holy place. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. They had to do this daily on this one. In the, on the Day of Atonement, they would make one major sacrifice. The blood was taken into the, the um, most holy place every year. He says, you don't have to do that. Now, Jesus, the fulfillment of this has come. So he does it once, and it's over. Okay? That means your sins have been forgiven forever, cast as far as the east is from the west. Does this mean that every week you have to go and somehow receive forgiveness of sins from a pastor, a priest, going to communion, uh, being good, or whatever the case might be? No. All the sins you've ever done have been forgiven. All the sins you're doing, all the sins that you ever could do, have been paid for. And you now are a saint, not a sinner, in Christ Jesus. He says that. Oh, you're a saint that sins sometimes. You're a sheep that sometimes acts like a goat. But you're still a sheep. There was no chair. Absolutely no chair in the tabernacle because there was no rest for the priests. They had to do it day after day. Which, by the way, Eli, who was a priest, is very interesting that he's sitting in a chair when he falls over backwards. I don't think he should have been sitting down. I think that's a picture as well. There was none. But Jesus, what does he do after he sacrifices himself? Hebrews 10 but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. It is finished. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven should not be purified with these, these earthly human animals. But the heavenly things, the things that these, the, the tabernacle pointed to, with, they should be purified with something better. And that was Jesus. Well, I can get this to change on me here. I need to do that. There we go. Do you know that if you would have been a Philistine, a Canaanite, or whoever, walking through the desert and you saw these crazy Israelites... You know, all around, camped around their tabernacle, some people in it. It's kind of the same thing where you have atheists and non-believers driving by the church here this morning and seeing all the cars parked out here going, oh, crazy Christians. What a waste of their time. You see, there it was drab on the outside. This whole thing, it just looked... Bleh. It had an outer covering of basically goat skin. There was nothing attractive about the tabernacle. Nothing. It was actually pretty bland. That is the way Jesus is to a non-believer. He's unattractive. The scriptures say that. John, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How about this? The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned unless you are born again the spirit doesn't live in you you can't spiritually discern anything without the spirit of God if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing you don't get the gospel please repent of your sins call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved it will no longer be foolishness but first you need to repent of your sins It says, Veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, basically would be revealed. Do you know, to me, we have a creation ministry. I speak on creation. It is so clear to me that God created this world. It is so clear to me from the Scriptures It is so clear for me, even from science, that this earth is young and created by God. So clear. I I don't know how anybody, everybody can't see it. But the God of this age has blinded so many people. And you know, I see that. We can't talk common sense, we can't talk logic anymore. Because the God of this age has blinded us. And I don't blame people who disagree with me on my views of Scripture. Okay? I don't blame people because they don't believe in Jesus Christ. It's not their fault, really, because they're blind. They need to repent of their sins. When they repent, God opens their eyes and then they can see how foolish they were. I can't make them see. I can't make them see at all. Only God. And that lies within the non believer. It's your choice. You choose this day whom you will follow. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to be able to see truth? Do you want to be able to see what all these crazy Christians are talking about? Repent of your sins. You'll see. Here's just a couple of verses for this wall. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. I drew them with gentle cords with bands of love, things like that. Love and nails and things like that. It's tied to the gospel uh, in a number of different verses. But anyway, just to give you a picture then, again, just to kind of remind you, we go through the door here, Jesus Christ, I am the way. You accept that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, the next thing you do is you go in to this bronze laver. Not bronze covering wood, but solid bronze. Okay, after that, then you have in here the holy place and the most holy place, but we'll see more of those later. But right now, you're gonna go to this brazen altar, or this brazen laver, this wash basin. Uh, Actually, I'm gonna give you one more thing here. Just kind of like here you had these bases, there's also these bases with wood that would hold up the pillars, that would hold up the curtains and whatnot in the holy and most holy place. It's kind of hard to see here, but there's silver. This was solid silver bases. Now what's kind of neat about that is I want you to understand that they're out in the desert when God says make this tabernacle, right? They're out there in the desert. Where'd they get silver? Silver. exactly. Egypt. You recall when they left Egypt, God blessed them, and He said that I'm going to make these people favorably disposed, go ask them for things. So they go and they knock on the uh, the Egyptians' houses and say, hey, we're leaving, Uh, can we have your stuff? And they said, please take it, here it is, gold, silver, jewelry, shoes, everything. It says that they plundered the Egyptians when they left. Now, if that's not God, I don't know what is. Okay? And so you would think these Israelites are like, wow, this is awesome, you know, until they had to carry it all. But anyway, they go out into the desert with all of this stuff. And then when they get out to the desert, God says, "Uh, by the way, I'd like that back. We'll talk more about this, but I want you to understand something. God blesses us, and I think he expects us to say, I'd like that back to be used for the kingdom of God. Like I said, we'll talk more about it in a minute. But what I want to point out here is this. You know the Bible tells us how many people left Egypt? You know, basic, you know, men and uh, that type of thing. It didn't include women and children. But do you know that the Bible also tells us this? In Exodus 38, the silver obtained was one becca per person, a half shekel from everyone who had crossed over, a total of 603,550 men. Now... If you go and look at this, the silver is a price of atonement. Okay? Every child, every person had to give one Becca of silver. We know how many people left. We know roughly how much a Becca weighs. In today's terms, it's about 100 pounds. Uh, or, well, I'm sorry, each uh, base, there are these bases here, there's 100 of them. We know that, the Bible tells us. They each weighed 100 pounds, so that's a total of 5 tons of silver. If you add up that many bekkahs, it adds up to just a fuzz over 5 tons of silver. But we also see that there were silver clasps that were used to hold up the tabernacle and everything. So, because the Bible tells us that the price that they were to pay was a price of atonement, what does the silver represent? Atonement money. This is a picture of atonement. The foundation that holds everything up is the price of atonement. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you for the altar to make atonement for you. So what is atonement? How is it paid? The blood of the sacrifice. Silver is a picture and symbol of the blood of Jesus. The foundation of the church. You know that song? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yeah. First Peter says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. As a lamb without blemish, without a spot, it takes you to Christ to the sacrifice there. Thing. it was the blood of the sacrifice not by silver or gold I really believe that those Israelites because they knew oh I'm paying my atonement where'd that go it's in the foundation I think that when, when Peter's talking about this they got it he didn't redeem you with silver and blood he redeemed you or silver and gold but he redeemed you with blood Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then here, uh, Acts 20, uh, that he, Jesus shepherded the church, which He purchased, not with silver or gold, but with His blood. As I said, it's not beautiful looking on the outside. It would have been on the inside, though. Inside the holy place and the most holy place, what you have is this first covering was beautiful with cherub uh, woven into it, angels. Then on top of that, you had goat hair, not so pretty. But on top of that, ram skin dyed red, which would have been kind of pretty seeing it from the outside. But then they covered it up with this porpoise skin. Now, four different layers Covering it, all four are pictures of Christ and His cover. I think. First of all, cherub are always with God's presence in Scripture. We'll talk more more about that. that. Goat hair, sacrificial animal. Ram, sacrificial animal. Porpoise skin. Well, a couple of things here. Number one, it may have served a practical purpose as well, from sand and rain and whatever. However, it's God. I think He could have put it with you know paper and it would have been fine. But anyway, we'll look at that here a little bit. Ezekiel 10 is just one of many examples where we see above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire of stone, basically God's throne. Every time you see God's throne, you will see the cherub. Remember in the Garden of Eden? The cherub were put there. It's in Ezekiel. It's in Revelation. It's everywhere. The cherub guard the throne of God. As I said, there were two goats. There was a scapegoat and a sacrificial goat in Leviticus 16. I'm not going to get into that much today as well, but um, possibility. That's why there were two sacrificial animals there. I don't know. We do know that Elijah wore uh, goat skin and camel hair and things like that. A picture of repentance as well, possibly. Again, there's no scripture verse that I can point to and say this is exactly what this represents, but these are some possibilities. Um, Ram, again, sacrificial animal, dyed red for the blood of Jesus, possibly, showing you the sacrifice of Jesus. And then the porpoise skin is also interesting. To me, it's this. Just like I said before, there's nothing to attract us. I'm not going to give away the secret yet. There's nothing to attract us to Jesus. Jesus. Really, there isn't. To an ungodly person, if they look at Jesus, the attitude today is, well, sounds nice, but you know, I'm doing alright. I'm happy. I might have some problems, but I don't need Jesus. You know? Did you know that Jesus was ugly? You know that? Yeah. He was ugly. The Bible tells me that. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I think that That's what Jesus is to those who don't know him. You might find an ugly person today. You might think he's ugly, but I guarantee you something. His mom and dad think he is beautiful, right? Those who know him love him. Look what Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, another messianic chapter about Jesus. It says, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. This way, when Jesus came, there weren't going to be people following Jesus because He was a handsome man. You might remember when President Clinton was running, they were talking about all these women voting for Him because He was supposedly a handsome man. Right? Nobody was going to follow Jesus because He looked nice. Today, we have so many churches who try to attract people into their churches by looking nice. Making sure they're not offensive as well from whatever they preach from the pulpit. Hey, if I offend you today, that's not my goal, but if it's truth, I hope that you will let it sink into your heart. Because I'm not here to be attractive, nice, and hope you like me because of that. We build these crystal cathedrals and all of these things to draw people in. That's not how Jesus did it. He drew them in with truth. And sometimes truth can be hard to look at. Where'd they get porpoise skin from the desert? Well, same place, the Israelites. But here's the amazing thing to me. When God says, hey, I want some of that back, You know what he does? He takes care of you. You think, I can't give it because I need it to survive. How am I going to pay my electric bill? My wife won't turn off the lights. Well, look at this. Ezekiel 16.10 tells us what the Israelites did with porpoise skin. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. The Israelites used porpoise skin for shoes. Then they get out in the wilderness, God says, I'd like your porpoise skin. By the way, I'm going to make you wander for 40 years too. Do you think they thought, oh my goodness, these shoes will never last? Yet, if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, you know what it says? I thought I had it up there, but maybe it's a... Uh, I don't know what verse it is, but it says this. Their shoes never wore out, nor did their ankles swell for 40 years. It says it right there in Scripture. When God asks us for something, He's not going to leave you unattended. He will take care of you. And that's exactly what He did with those Israelites. And by the way, those Israelites, they gave joyfully. They weren't like, really, God? Really? Like often we might do today. No, they said, here it is. Okay. Thank you, God, for delivering me. They were so thrilled to see what God had done for them. Yes, for a short time. I mean, you're going to see they fall away pretty quickly, but they gave joyfully. Isn't that the attitude we should have? Not because, oh, man, I don't want to... Okay, because I have to. It should be, God, you died for me. You... You've done everything for me. You can have everything. That should be our attitude. Well, this laver, the priests had to wash their hands and feet with it. After you had that sacrifice, you went to the brazen laver to wash your hands and your feet before you went in. It says that here in Exodus 30. Why? Well, I think it's a picture of this. That... It's our flesh, and it's a picture of a clean walk. What was this brazen labor made out of? Exodus 38 tells us, the mirrors of the women. says so it right there. God said to the women, give me your mirrors. Stop looking at yourself so much and put your eyes on me. It's a picture of vanity, I believe. It's a picture of the flesh. We can get so vain sometimes and spend so much money on our fashion, our looks, our hair, whatever, and yet there are people that could be starving over you know, other places, right? maybe right next door. Who knows? But the bottom line is he's saying, I want your flesh. And then the water. The Jews always picture water as, as the Word of God. They've always done it in the Talmud because of the Word. It's very similar to Torah and whatnot. And so they would wash their hands and feet. It's the Word, God, that does the washing. You can't even do that. You struggle with sin in your life? I do. Do you? Then let God wash you. You can't do it, but you can do all things through Christ, the Word of God. I'd love to talk more about that, but I've got to keep moving here. The other thing is, is remember Peter? Jesus was going to wash Peter's feet, and Peter says, No, Lord, I should be washing yours. And the Lord looks at him and he says, Peter, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Well, oh Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then God says, A person who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. Uh, uh, a person who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but it's com- he is completely clean. But not all of you, basically, speaking of Judas. I think the picture is this a person who has had a bath, a person who has already been in the kingdom of God, you're already in the door. You've already had the sacrifice. You're already there, but you still need to wash your hands and feet. He says feet. here. Why? Because it's with our feet that we walk after God. It's with our hands that we serve Him. I think this is a picture of our daily walk with God. And we let the Word, kind of as you were saying in Bible study, we live it. It's not something we add to our life, but how do we meditate on the law all day long? You die. And you let Christ live in you and through you. In everything you do. If I'm watching a TV show, Christ is there with me in my thoughts, analyzing it. If I go to the grocery store and buy, I can sing songs and praise Him while I'm buying my groceries. God becomes a part of every part of our life. But anyway, as I said, it was bronze. We started out with bronze being covering wood, then solid bronze. Now we're going to go into the holy place, and guess what? We see gold covering wood, and then it's going to be solid gold. The closer you get into this most holy place, the more precious and beautiful things become. That's the way it is in our Christian walk, folks. Are you content hanging out here in this outer court? Hey, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. Good. I'm glad you're saved. But would you like the joy of Christianity? You're going to need to go a little further. You're going to need to wash your hands and feet. You're going to have to have a clean walk. You need to live in obedience, not to get saved. You already are. You need to live in obedience to experience the joy of your christianity. Remember John in chapter 17, Jesus says this when he's praying for them. Uh, or I'm mixing two things up, but the fruit and the vine, chapter 15, I believe there. He says if he says if you obey me, I will remain in you and you will remain in me. And then he says I have told you this that your joy may be complete. If you obey me, I'll remain in you. I've told you this so that your joy can be complete. Do you know how many Christians I see walking around, moping around as if they're not saved? Life is too hard? I was watching a TV show here not uh, long ago, a few months back, and I don't even know what it was called, but it, it struck me. Between, I was just like, whoa. The premise was this. There was a serial killer. The serial killer got caught. Twenty years later, this serial killer is in jail. His son comes to visit him. Only then in the movie do you find out the serial killer wasn't the serial killer. The son was. The father took the rap for him. And the son is coming and talking to him and saying how hard it was because these urges. He just, I I think i got to go back. I, I can't stop. And his father looks at him and he says this. I died for you. Are you finding it too hard to be free? Wow. Jesus died for you. How many of us are finding it too hard to be free? Maybe in part because we haven't died yet. Maybe in part because we're not walking in obedience and you have no joy. Of your salvation. Yeah, I wish I could talk more on that. I need to keep moving. You go into the holy place. The first thing you see on the right side is this thing called the table of showbread. The table of showbread had 12 pieces of bread on it. I believe a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that even in Revelation and heaven, all that. Okay. Um, I told you it was wood being covered by gold, more precious. Again, humanity, deity, Jesus, the bread of life. We also see full God, full man there again. Now, to put this into perspective, this is not biblical, this is just an illustration. You might look at it this way. We have three parts, the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. This can be the body, the soul, and the spirit. God doesn't tell us to worship him in body, to worship him in soul, he says, true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth, says in John. Why not the soul? Well, what is the soul? I think the soul, personally, is where, where your emotions are at. That's why we have words like soul food, soul music. It's the kind of really makes you want to dance, you know. It, 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 it appeals to the emotions. But the spirit is God. It, the spirit is the mind and truth. Well, I know a lot of churches, a lot of Christians that are happy just being in, you know, saved. They're there in body. They sit in their pews. Their body is here today, but it's probably out of tradition, maybe out of guilt, perhaps fire insurance so that you don't go to hell. You think that, well, I can say, Lord, I went to church 50 out of 52 weeks. Two of those were snow days. Well. That's fine and all, but then there are those that go to church because they like the music. They like the social fellowship. It makes me feel good. I get to see this guy. I haven't seen him in a long time. And I really do like that music. But they're really not there in spirit, but just the emotional draw. Maybe some of you are only right there today. And then there's the spirit where true worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Because you are here today because you want to worship praise and get to know the creator of this world, the Savior of all mankind, if they are willing, that you want to be there with Him in His presence. You might look at it a kitchen, a living room, or a bedroom as well. kitchen is nice. Living room is better, but there's no place like the bedroom. Especially after a long day. Where do you want to be? Well, we know here, let's see what's more in here. That table of showbread is a picture of communion, folks. Communion with God. Now, I want you to understand, there's three pieces of furniture here. Communion. If you do a word search on communion or the Lord's table, what you're going to see is that nobody was welcome to the Lord's table that uh, wasn't accepted by God. You didn't bring an enemy into your home. The Jews never ate with Gentiles. You had to be in the family to sit at my table. And we, we can see lots of Scripture, God inviting us to His table and whatnot, a wedding banquet of the Lamb and Revelation, all kinds of things that we can look at. I'm not going to be able to get time to go through them all. But there was a hand breath it says, that we uh, held the bread on. It's not like it's going to go anywhere, but so it's clearly a picture of something. And I don't know if it's like what John says, that you know, no, nobody can take them out of my hand. He says he, he hasn't lost any of them. Um, interesting, the Bible even tells us how much bread there was, like uh, two-tenths of an ephah of flour was to be used in every loaf of bread. Well, what's an ephah? I mean, it, to us, that doesn't mean anything. Well, look what it says here in Exodus 16. Each one is to gather as much as he needs, speaking of the manna. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Then later it says an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So when you were out there in the wilderness and God gave you manna, every day he says each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person. So your daily portion was an omer. But then it says an Omer is one tenth of an Ephah. In other words, one tenth of an Ephah is a daily portion. Therefore, two tenths of an Ephah is a double portion. Right? Do you know in the Bible, the firstborn always got the double portion? The inheritance. Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is our double portion. Jesus is the bread of life. I think it's safe to say that the reason it was two-tenths of an ephah is because it's a picture of the firstborn bread of life. Um, That was on your right. On your left side was what's called the menorah, seven-tiered candlestick. Going through this real quick, we know that Jesus is called the light of the world. Many different cases in many different ways. He is the light. Psalm 119, your word, Jesus, the word of God, your word is a lamp unto my feet. And you may say, okay, so why seven tears? Well, I think it's because of Isaiah 11, verse 2, where it tells us that there are seven spirits of God. Well, Revelation says that first uh, right here in Revelation 4. It says, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And you might say, now, wait a minute. There's only one spirit of God. Well, I agree. But that one spirit has seven attributes, it seems. Because look what it says in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A main trunk, a main shoot. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Here's the roots, there's the branch. What is Isaiah 11 talking about? A branch that comes from Jesse? Jesus. So, a branch will grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Seven attributes to that one branch. So, quite possible that that is a picture of the seven attributes. Keep in mind, this is covered in porpoise skin and four different layers of things, right? Do you know how much light was in there? None. Without the lamp, it was pitch dark. That's the way it is, guys, without Jesus in this world. Remember, Jesus even said, you know, you think that you can see, but you don't realize that you're blind. Many people think they can see, and they're not Christians, but they're blind. That's why they believe all the things the world tells them. I can't see. It is the word that is a lamp unto our feet. It's the word of God that guides us and allows us to see truth, to see the path that we should be on. Um, Again, just more scripture verses talking about the branch of righteousness, the branch of the Lord and all of these kind of things. Directly in front of you then was the Altar of incense. Real quick, this is a picture of prayer. I can tell you that. The Bible tells me that. Revelation 5.8 says the angels had these uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. No question, that's what it is. We know that it is God, or I should say Jesus, that makes intercession for us. This is why I say, guys, we don't need to pray to Mary. We don't need some intercessor. We don't need to pray to some other person, a grandma or a grandpa, that you know, like the Chinese would do. Because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. It says here, if it is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, and is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. I don't need to go to Mary, to go to Christ, to go to God. I go to Jesus. I go right to the man. I'm going to the top. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray, for We ought to, as for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercessions for us with groans that words cannot express. This is just Scripture. If it bothers you, go to the Scriptures. Show me in Scripture what you believe is correct. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Well, between the holy place here and the most holy place, there's a big curtain. The Jews say it was about four inches thick. We're not 100% sure. This is, you know, tradition based on Jews. But all I know is they say that four yoke of oxen, I think it was Josephus said that, couldn't pull it apart. This is a major curtain. Heavy, solid. Now, another interesting thing. There was no tear in it. You know, if there's a curtain, a big wall, how, how would you get through it? Usually, you know, part it, go around to the outside, kind of, you know. I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I can tell you what the Jews say happened. Once a year, the high priest went from this holy place into the most holy place. They say he just was transported in there. And you may go, that's dumb. Happened to Philip when he was on the Ethiopian, you know, he's ministering to this Ethiopian on his chariot, and then boom, he was gone, and he was just in this other town immediately. Okay. Again, I can't tell you. That's just what the Jews say. Makes sense to me. But who knows? But it's interesting. But what I want you to see is in this most holy place is this. You can be saved. That's fine. Hang out in the outer court. But you want to know God better? You know how you're going to do it? Commune with Him. Be in His Word. And Pray. Those are the three things. By the way, when the disciples were meeting after Jesus ascended and they would get together, guess what they got together to do? Pray, commune, right? And study the word. Isn't it interesting that the early church, that's what they kept getting together to do. Yeah. They were living in the holy place. Well, that curtain that I've been telling you about. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter the holiest place, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. You entered the most holy place by going through the veil, and it says that is his flesh. You wonder why the body of Christ was broken on that cross for you? He says that veil was the body, the flesh of Jesus. Okay? Now, we're now seated in the heavenly places already. Ephesians tells us that. Um, We're already there because God has given us access into the most holy place. Do you know in the old days i got about five minutes here. I, I'm, I should be stopping now, but if you don't mind if somebody has to go, I won't be offended if you need to get out, but I've got about five minutes to close this out. In the old days, in the Old Testament, if you did some murder or something, and you were just, oh, I feel so bad, and you went, and the priests offered a sacrifice for you, and it was accepted, and you, oh, you're forgiven, and you were so thankful that you ran in, and you went into this most holy place, and you grabbed onto the Ark of the Covenant, you know what would have happened to you? dead when Jesus died he opened up that most holy place so that now you can enter and not die why can you enter because you are now pure you see the reason you would die is because something unholy cannot be in the presence of holiness the holiness just it's not like God is mean it's just it's it's oil and water they don't mix Holiness can't be around unholiness. But when Jesus died and He made you a saint, He forgave you of your sins. Now, you can be in God's presence. And so not only did Jesus sit down at the right hand of God, but God raised us up together with Him. Made us sit together in the heavenly realms with Christ. Again, I don't understand how that can all be. All I know is it is. All I know is the Bible says that Jesus now lives in me. I am now that most holy place. The scriptures do say that. That is something to celebrate. Inside that most holy place, behind the curtain, there was this, the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of it, the mercy seat. The cherub, which by the way, I love this picture. We're just getting over the celebration of the resurrection, right? When Mary goes into the tomb, what does she see? She sees our altar, our, our mercy seat, the tomb of Jesus. Empty, but what's sitting on one end and what's sitting on the other end? It says that, that there was two angels, one on, at his feet and one at his head. A complete picture of this. The mercy seat of God with the angels on either side. That is the mercy seat. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would bring in and they put blood on this altar. Okay? I, I, I could talk more about things, but for now I think you get the picture. The cherub, always around the throne of God. They are also in the most holy place there as well. We've kind of talked about that, so I won't get into it more. Outside of the fact, what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Three things. I think the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we see is this. God the Father, the Ten Commandments. They were stored in there. Aaron's son, or Aaron's rod that had budded into almonds, the Spirit. And then the gold jar of manna. Jesus. Jesus even said in John 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert and yet they died. Okay? So that is a picture of what we see here in the tabernacle. One more time, you go through the gates of Jesus. The sacrifice He made for you on the cross. You're saved! But are you content with that? I hope not. Continue to have the Word wash you so that you can live in obedience to Him. And when you do... And you commune, pray, commune, pray, and read his word. You're going to get to know him better. He's going to draw you closer. The most holy place was a perfect cube. Read the book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven is a perfect cube. I think, in some ways, we are there already, as Ephesians tells us. So we have now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. But I don't think we will fully experience and understand this most holy place until He comes back to take us with Him again. And that perfect cube, that revelation comes down. And that we uh, will be at His feet, the throne of God, in a, in a, much like it was in the Garden of Eden where we will walk with Him that way. And so I look forward to that. Just like in Passover, as you'll see if you come here to, uh, tomorrow night, you'll see that Passover isn't completely finished yet. There's more to it. Tabernacle, it's not completely finished yet. There's still more to look forward to, more to celebrate.